You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. G'day, Amy McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. On the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Down at the wharves in Melbourne, the Maritime Union of Australia, the MUA, are preparing to take protected action against Patrick's over an agreement the company wants to force on workers without a semblance of consultation. A strange situation in a time of a pandemic in a country that relies heavily on what comes in and out of its ports. Many of our listeners will remember the extraordinary scenes on Melbourne's wharves in 1998, ignited by Patrick's that saw Wharfie's locked out, balaclavered mercenaries and a thousand police pitted against a community picket. Many of the present legalistic tactics of the government against unions now can be traced back to this dispute. So today we are opening the Stick Together vault to listen to Colin McNaughton's look at the older dispute before we hear from Robert Lumsden from the Victorian branch of the MUA about what's going on now. But first, some union news. Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union, the AMIEU members at JBS Brooklyn, won paid pandemic on August 12th after raising concerns about a lack of health and safety precautions taken around COVID-19. The workers also won the right to quarantine for 14 days from their last shift because of a COVID outbreak. Paul Conway, Victorian State Secretary of the Victorian AMIEU, the largest employee representative union for the meat industry, said that securing the pandemic payment was an important win for its members who have been working hard to support Victoria's meat supply during COVID. Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union AMWU members lost a long fight against Cadbury's on August 13 when the High Court ruled that shift workers cannot accrue sick leave according to the hours per day that they have worked. The working day for these workers is 12 hours, but the company argued that they should only be paid the 7 hours 35 minute standard working day in sick leave. The AMWU had won this case in both the Fair Work Commission and the Federal Court, but Cadbury, backed by the Federal Government, appealed to the High Court and unfortunately they won. (coughs) University of Melbourne has been forced to repay millions to staff after decades-long underpayment practices after it was taken to the Fair Work Commission. Millions of dollars are being quietly repaid to at least 1,500 academics in a wage theft case involving four faculties at Australia's richest tertiary institution. The University of Melbourne's latest annual report lists $4.43 billion in reserves, 
while 72.9% of staff are in insecure work. Plans to compensate staff under the Fair Work Act are underway. However, the union and management are still technically in dispute. The National Tertiary Education Union, NTEU, said the situation was both diabolical and systematic, with the practices occurring at two other top-tier universities and casualisation leaving staff vulnerable to working for free. The dispute involves university management classifying tutorials as practice classes to avoid paying staff the full rate, therefore reducing wages by up to a third. The recently scrapped marking rate requiring 4,000 words per hour, including student feedback. Unions estimate this paid staff for just half of the time they spent working. What happened at Melbourne University is really just the tip of the iceberg, NTEU National Secretary Alison Barnes said. The claim has also stopped a practice in the Faculty of Art where tutors were encouraged to attend a lecture for the class they were teaching but were not paid. Hundreds of staff are expected to claim money, but the statute of limitations means payments can only go back as far as 2014. Victoria is the only state to pass laws specifically addressing wage theft, and the union says the federal government needs to step in. Dr Barnes said it almost provides an incentive to try and drive wages down across our private providers. A new report, the Media Diversity Australian report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories, reveals that just 6% of television news and current affairs reporters have a non-European background. The Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance provided funding for the project, which was conducted over 12 months by researchers from four universities. The final report confirms that Australian television news is still dominated by white, Anglo-Celtic faces. 75% of presenters, commentators and reporters have an Anglo-Celtic background, while only 4.7% have a non-European background and 1.2% are Indigenous. 77% of respondents with culturally diverse backgrounds believe their backgrounds are a barrier to career progression. 100% of free-to-air television national news directors have an Anglo-Celtic background and they are all male. And 35 out of 39 board members of Australian free-to-air television are Anglo-Celtic. This report tells us that opportunities in journalism for people from a non-European or Indigenous background are far less than for people from an Anglo-Celtic background, said MEAA Media Federal President Marcus Strom. In a modern, cultural and racially diverse Australia, those who in interpret or report the news should reflect those they are reporting on and those who watch their bulletins. It is particularly appalling that according to this report there is not a single Indigenous presenter, commentator or reporter on television screens in the Northern Territory or Queensland, two states with large Indigenous populations. More needs to be done to give people from diverse backgrounds opportunities to work in Australian television journalism and to encourage them to apply for jobs in the industry. But paths for career progression must also be created so that people from diverse backgrounds can move into leadership positions within news (laughs) organisations.
Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews at one of his daily COVID updates stated that the role of insecure work in the spread of the COVID virus has shown that once the health emergency is over, one of the most important issues will be to combat the prevalence of casualisation and insecurity in the workplace. Insecure work was a health issue as well as an economic issue, he said. You are listening to Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. Down at the wharves in Melbourne, protected action has been put in place at DP World, who has failed to honour an in-principle EBA agreement ironed out after two years last October. Well, Patrick's has got into the act by offering the workers an agreement that flies in the face of existing conditions, setting in motion a damaging dispute despite the absolutely crucial role the docks play in maintaining stability during the COVID pandemic here in Australia. The MUA will take a national stance when it comes to disputes with these operators who also work on a national basis. Before we get to this present-day dispute with Patrick's, we are going to go back in time to the desperate days of the 1998 Patrick's dispute on the Melbourne Wharves, which exposed the orchestrated nature of the attacks on workers' rights, conditions and pay, with the business class, the government and the police arrayed against the MUA and the community that supported them. Since this earlier dispute with Patrick's was the beginning of the new phase of legalised attacks by the government and business on unions, it seems worthwhile to be reminded what happened from the Stick Together vaults, thanks to Colin McNaughton. Let's start with a reflection by John Higgins, who was Deputy State Secretary of the Victorian MUA during the dispute. We'd heard some rumours about people being trained in Dubai, but nobody sort of tend to take much notice of that until all of a sudden the, uh, the famous day when the dispute hit Melbourne and Patrick's decided to lock the whole workforce out, starting in Melbourne, and then all the all the information came through then via, I guess some people had managed to make contact with certain people, the anonymous phone calls, if you like, to the ACTU and other areas that indicated that these people had been trained in Dubai with military background, and the idea was to bring them out here and work for the National Farmers Federation, break through on the docks, set up their own workforce and do away with traditional uh, union labour. What ensued was a multi-dimensional battle between Chris Corrigan, the CEO of Patrick Stevedoring, the main company involved, the Liberal government, headed by John Howard, and the Maritime Union of Australia. John Higgins reflects on the implications of this moment. I do want to touch a little bit on what you said on the 17th and 18th of April, which was probably one of the most historical days that really highlighted the dispute to a maximum was the morning of this, uh, the CFMEU when they did come in when the police were trying to break up the picket line, which had been going for some oh, 20 hours. It's, well, I'd been up for 24 hours, I think, at the time. When they finally came in the morning, like we'd been there on the uh, peaceful assembly there from before it got dark the night before, the police did indicate to us that they wanted to break it up. They told us that. They didn't give us a time or anything like that, of course. And uh, one of the things they didn't tell us was about the uh, helicopters, I've got to say. It was very intimidating. During the middle of the night, there was all these helicopters. And in the morning, early in the morning, when the police had made a passageway, if you like, moving the railway lines that were there as a deterrent for people to get through, they'd broken through and they'd got very close to the front line of the picket line where there was 
a number of celebrities, including the uh, the former Premier of Victoria, Jane Kerner, then the CFMEU in the morning, along with other building workers, had a decision to come down and join us and give us some support early in the morning, and they came in behind the police, and uh, and that's really, there was still no violence, there'd been no uh, actual spitting at police or any violence whatsoever, and of course that sort of, at the end of the day, that finished the dispute as such from that day on. As the CFMEU and the building workers arrived in the morning, they just parted and the police turned around and uh, they were clapped and they uh, and they left and uh, went on went on to better and bigger things, I guess. <laughs> What do you say? I mean, it brings a tear to your eye to wake up and you see these goons there with balaclavas and dogs and all that, and you know the history that they are as soldiers. They want you to jump the fence and they want to break people's necks and arms and all that, and the government supported this, the National Farmers Federation supported this, and all, all this type of thing. They bring these people along to break to break a union of workers, traditionally have been fighting for, for conditions, and we should make no apologies for that. And that's been supported, and we know it was supported, for them to be there and at the end of the day, you know what happened to them? What happened to them? We know what happened to them. They actually looked to the unions to try and help them to get paid out when they lost their jobs anyway. And that to me is just, that's probably ends, ends the, you know, the saga there. And uh, the government, did they give them anything? Of course they didn't give them anything. They just promised them the world. They said they'd have a job. What right does uh, people like us have to be getting, you know? getting good wages and conditions, you can have their jobs. And, you know, what a disgusting thing to wake up to and a disgusting thing for any government to support and to be, uh, to be a party to. The police do not believe that this is a properly constituted picket line. You are no longer entitled to protection of the picket protocol and the policies that have been put in place. Police are not required to move a picket line, but are required to move a physical obstruction. As you are refusing to allow free access to persons who are legally entitled to enter and leave these premises, you now become a physical obstruction and we are now entitled to remove you. If you resist, There is little doubt that it was a major achievement for the Patricks workers to walk back through the gate on May 7, having found themselves locked out three months previously. Moreover, they walked back in as members of the Maritime Union of Australia, employed by Patricks and not a labour hire company. Dave Cushion, an official with the MUA, will be followed by Kevin Bracken. Yes, it was a victory because the whole intent of that dispute was to finish the MUA. It was, it was specifically about destroying this union. We survived that. We survived when many unions around the world have not under the same sort of a concentrated attack. We took on, if you think about it, the government, the Farmers' Federation, the business community. There was a wide range of people who were against us, but there was a lot of people on our side, and I think society were on our side, and I think we came through. It was a victory. I think it's the first time in the world that a government 
you know, tried to get we're with big businesses, tried to get rid of a union, and they didn't succeed in it. As to whether we took cuts, yeah, we sure did. There was no doubt the union did take cutting conditions, which some of the conditions which we've come back from. Probably one of the main things was a straddle. Used to pick up five blokes for three straddles. After the dispute, we drove one man per straddle, and then after a large amount of neck and back injuries, it's actually got back to four men for three machines. So it's you know, not back where it was, but it's, we're getting back there. The unions got recognised you know, by the company. Union meetings with the delegates every month down there. And the union is still a key part at all of Patrick's facilities. So And the unions has been able to improve the um, enterprise agreements every time since 1998. So, yeah, we took cuts, but we're still there, and that's, that's the main thing. If you have a look what happened in the UK, totally de-unionised, and as it is now, it's virtually not a real... hasn't got a real strong presence here. The MUA is here to stay, but it came at a cost. The Patrick's Enterprise Bargaining Agreement, which was entered into after the dispute, saw 450 workers retrenched nationally the maintenance and cleaning outsourced, and a range of work practices changed. Dave Cushion again. After a dispute like that, you win and you lose, and there were some losses for us, and I think we've spent some time since that regaining our strength. It was a big battle and it took a lot out of us, and I think we've come back. I think we were a stronger union now than we were then. The government hasn't come back at us. Since then, they've moved on to try other targets. And I think they've learnt some lessons out of it. I think the sort of things you're seeing in the Workplace Relations Act, the more legalistic approach they've taken to trade unions, all the stuff you see in work choices, the quasi-police state that they've got overlooking construction. You're with Annie on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. After years of work to regain conditions and wages, and even though the ports are essential for stability during COVID, Patrick's has decided that now is the time to force workers onto an agreement which fails to recognise life-work balance. Robert Lumsden from the Victorian branch of MUA explains what's at stake. For quite some time now, Patrick's Management have been speaking with the union about a rollover in the background and what and what it would take to, to facilitate that occurring. So there was some back and forth between the parties. They were quite concerned about the pandemic and said, OK, we'll go back to them with a 12-month rollover, which they knocked on the head. They wanted a four-year rollover. They put one to us, a four-year rollover, but put it in not just it'll be a rollover the agreement. And this, there was, it was quite detailed and put to us as take this in a package or not at all. And the way it was put to us, we simply couldn't accept it in, in, in the formation it was put to us. We simply couldn't accept that. And so once that um, process had stopped, it came down to a log of claims, a normal bargaining process. So the MUA put uh, their log of claims to Patrick's, <clears throat> and Patrick's then put a document um, to the union. And the, the document was a a whole new um, agreement based on the way they see the world going forward. And it's fair to say it is, it's hard to just put a word to, to it. It's such a move away from what we, what the current document is. It's just a entirely different document. And 
there's so many things in it that are um, that are a, an attack on, on on the workers' rights and conditions that have been fought for, particularly since those were around in '98 and came back in the gate, and the conditions that have been fought for since that day to get to where we are today, to have a document put to us that just rewinds the clock all the way back, and it's so it is a massive attack on our conditions. We've had a, some meetings with them. What, what um, are they? What are they asking? What are they saying? Some of the things in it, Annie, some of the things, uh, so all the terminals are different and they've put one roster. They just want this one roster to fit and it doesn't work that way in reality and they've added on a lot more weekend days and the way that roster's been put, there's totally irregular work through it. So it would be a move away from the family, the balance of family and, and work life to it simply you would just be at home waiting for a phone call to go to work. Um, their consultation and change clause has been removed. The way they've written their clause, it would mean that they would have the ability to consult with the workforce, tell them, outline what they have the change they want to put in place, and then simply 21 days later implement that change without any prospect of, of us being able to um, challenge it. And they would have followed their agreement to the letter to that. You know, your roster is everything. It's what you work, what you live by. And, and it would mean that People would have to get behind on hours on this on the roster they've put forward. You'd have to owe hours. Then, I mean, they would have the ability to go and consult with the workforce, tell them we're going to change all your RDOs to off available, so we can get back those hours. And you'd simply be a, it would just be that would be just be a terrible, um, terrible thing to happen to the workforce. Bunnings does this as well. This is a a, a thing where they owe, you owe them hours. And the hours can be at any time. So any penalty rates or anything like that is out the windows, right? That's right. It sounds like, it sounds like Patrick's is um, trying to create a workforce that uh, just has to come to work regardless, otherwise they're going to lose money. The way that roster's set up, and there's, they want to remove what we... There's a, uh, it's got a grade two permanent um, category of employment, and they want to grandfather that clause, uh, that, that workforce, and just move them on and they just want their permanence that will owe, owe them hours forever and they want a casual workforce. So it's a total... What they've set up would be a, to be a totally a totally irregular roster with a move back to casualisation. And part of the thing that we've fought for over the last few agreements, we've gone from a four-hour minimum to a seven-hour minimum to an eight-hour minimum and they want to drag that all the way back to a, a four-hour minimum for PGEs. They want to remove selection criteria and... Um, around training and upgrades and they'll just, they'll just decide um, who, who gets what and when they get it. So in, in our agreements, we have a Part A section and we have a Part B. The Part A is gen- generic, which um, sits, which overarches all the four ports around the country. And your Part B section of your agreement relates to your port, which is specific to your port. Um, Patrick's want to remove that. They want a reduction of ERC paid meetings, which are integral to the continuance of the consultation between the workforce and the and the local management. They want a reduction of paid training days. They want labour reviews to be whenever, just whenever, um, whereas right now they're done twice yearly. There's a whole removal of um, conditions that were being fought for for a long time. And, and the funny thing about the roster change for me is that there's, I know out of Melbourne, there's no... There's no real need for it. The work that it actually works. So 
for them to come along and just say, we want this one ideal roster would mean that you would, the way it's set up with all the added weekend days into it, you, if you get one weekend where it's quiet, you get dropped off, you all of a sudden know 36 hours. And because there's not really, um, there's only four possible days in, in these seven weeks on a weekend that you wouldn't be available. So every other weekend day you'd be available. So the only way to pay back the ads would be during the week. So you'd finish up working three or four days to pay back those hours you've lost on a week. And so it's a real attack on the... Like like indentured, on. It's like being an indentured slave. Well, it, it, it really is. And it's, it's just such a removal of what we've fought for and the conditions that, you know, it takes a long time to get to a, a really, to, to a good spot. Um, and that takes agreement after agreement after agreement. And we go back, and I'll, you know, to the into the 20s and 30s and 40s where people really starved. They went out on strike for six weeks at a time just to get a condition where their families genuinely starved. And it's taken a long time to get to them. We had the strike in 98 where the, the lockout of 98, which, um, and then since then we've, you know, bit by bit we've got back to a, to a, to what we consider to be conditions that are, that are fair and reasonable for everyone. And all of a sudden we have a management now that wants to come and, and just, uh, and just pull the pull the rug from underneath all of that. So that's why. Thanks that's why for anybody, explaining that. Yep, yeah, and that's why we've now got to um, a protected action ballot. And um, we felt that was the once they presented us with this document, we were left with no other uh, option but to go to the Fair Work Commission, where we we argued for twenty three questions, and we uh, we got the Fair Work Commission to tick off on all those. So that's now been um, mailed out to all. Uh, members, Patrick members around the country. And, and what are we asking of uh, all of those members when they receive their ballot, Rob? Uh, to tick yes to the 23 questions, Aaron, and send it back as soon as possible. So, and that's, and we've been doing worksite um, visits. Aaron and myself have been down regularly to Patrick's in Melbourne to, um, to encourage members to vote, to vote yes to all 23 and send a message to the company that the attack on their conditions will not be stood for and that we want to send them a strong message that, they, that we are up for the fight if they if they continue down that path. We think that if we, um, we, we, we put the ballot in and we prefer not to go to protected action anyway, it's not something we take lightly because when we go to protected action, that means our members aren't being paid, paid for that, for that, um, for that time off. So, but it's interesting because during COVID, it really proved how important the people on the wharves are, and they still act as if yeah. they're they've got the strength. You know that they're the most important people in the world. It's funny yeah. when you, you say that, and and yet we know what the um, you know I'm told speak generally what the right wing media will do to us when if we take protected action, they'll you know call greedy wharf. He's doing it, but at the end of the day, that's it's, we're the, we're the ones that keep the joint going. We're the ones that the, the, the workers that turn up and go to work. They're the ones that create all the bonuses for the for the people who sit sit in their ivory towers and get all the credit for all the work that's done on the ground by people. And so it is important that we send a message to the company that we're not going to cop it. That um, we will go to protected action if need be. That's it to stick together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or on iTunes, and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's Annie McLaughlin. 
Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together. We maintained the pieces, we stood for our rights. They bought in the dogs and armed thugs for the fight. They went to the courts and the courts ruled our way. Why are we still standing outside today? Justice delayed is justice denied For judges have ruled that the right's on our side Now give us our jobs back and fling the gates wide For justice delayed is justice denied It's pathetic to hear businessmen crying poor They can't pay a fair wage yet they pay for law The law goes against them as rightly it ought And still they have money to try the next court Justice delayed is justice denied For judges have ruled that the right's on our side Now give us our jobs back and fling the gates wide For justice delayed is justice denied They say they can't pay us, the company's broke And we'd all be laughing, except it's no joke They're still paying scabs on the big hired bus But they've stripped all the assets, there's no cash for us Justice delayed is justice denied For judges have ruled that the right's on our side Now give us our jobs back and fling the gates wide For justice delayed is justice denied We're sick of injunctions, we're sick of the wait While scabs wreck equipment, we watch through the gates Our trust in the Lord's wearing weary and thin It's time to do justice and let us back in Justice delayed is justice denied for judges have ruled that the right's on our side Now give us our jobs back and fling the gates wide For justice delayed is justice denied Justice delayed is justice denied For judges have ruled that the right's on our side Now give us our jobs back and fling the gates wide For justice delayed is justice denied You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.